This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Good morning. We're going to read from Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. (coughs) Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Thanks, Debbie. Well, I want to begin this morning by reading a story that I think in the in the Christian world kind of ranks up with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or it's a, a wonderful life. Uh, in the kind of the customs, it's probably one of the most read illustrations in all churches. And I think uh, because we can relate to it. And you are probably familiar with Max Lucado. And he's written a book called In the Eye of the Storm, A Day in the Life of Jesus. And he begins this book with a story now of a renowned parakeet named Chippy. I'd like to read to you the story of Chippy the parakeet. It says, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello when... Chippy got sucked in. (laughs) The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Now, since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing Chippy was soaking and shivering, She did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, 
the reporter who initially had written about the event, contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's hard, <laughs> it's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. Can you relate to Chippy? Most of us can. One moment you're seated in familiar territory with a song on your lips. Then the pink slip comes. The rejection letter arrives. The doctor calls. The divorce papers are delivered. The check bounces. The policeman knocks on your door. You're sucked up into a black cavern of doubts. Doused with cold water of reality and stung with the hot air of empty promises. The life that had been so calm is now so stormy. You're hailstormed by demands, assailed by doubts, pummeled by questions. And somewhere in the trauma, you lose your joy. Somewhere in the storm, you lose your song. I think the reason why this story has so much meaning with so many people is that we can relate to the plight of Chippy. Going along in life, everything seemingly going so well, then suddenly uh, just hit by a barrage of events in our life that can literally suck the joy and steal the song from our heart. Uh, When I think of that, I think of Isaiah 12, verse 2. I love this passage, and you will too as it comes up on the screen here. All right, there it is. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in Him and not be afraid. Let's get this last part. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. I love that. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. And so while we can identify with the experience of Chippy, we can also proclaim the word of Scripture and apply that to our lives, that the Lord God is our strength and our song, and that it's the Lord God who gives us the victory. Now this morning in our passage, the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey is entering the town of Corinth. But he's entering with fear, having experienced much pain. Uh, You might recall that his second missionary journey began with a Macedonia call. As he was there in in Asia Minor, uh, he received a vision of a man calling, and he interpreted that to, to move not further east into Asia, but to go up into Macedonia. And he was obedient to that vision. And as he went... The first town he came to was a town called Philippi. And, and you might recall there at, at Philippi, he was met with much opposition. He and Silas were, were thrown in prison. Uh, they were beaten. 
And they were held in, in the worst of circumstances there in the innermost part of the prison. And do you remember what happened? It was about midnight, having been beaten and in stocks, that Paul and Silas did the most unexpected thing. They began to sing praises to God. They began to, to pray. And they did it in such a manner that, that all the other prisoners and the prison guard could hear. And literally what was happening is, was an expression of that verse in Isaiah 12 too. They were proclaiming that the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. And although their circumstances were difficult, they would not allow the circumstances they were encountering to rob them of their joy. In fact, years later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Philippians. And that letter to the Philippians is known as the letter or the epistle of what? Joy. And as he's writing that, it's also one of his prison epistles. He's writing that letter under house arrest in Rome. And he's reminding the Philippians. Because as a result of that visit, a, a vibrant church was established. And he's calling them back to remember in their own time of persecution, in their own time of difficulty, that the Lord gives us joy. That we can count on the Lord, that we can look to the Lord who is greater than any of our circumstances. And in the midst of trial and difficulty and hardship, in fact, the Lord is our strength. The Lord places a song in our heart. It's the Lord who is our victory. And so Paul, getting the Macedonia call, goes to, to Philippi. The church is established there. And from there, he's run out of town. And he goes to a place called Berea. And you might remember there. Uh, he encountered some believers who listened to what he had to say, but they were really focused on the centrality of the Word of God, which is one of the markers of a healthy missional church. And they wanted to know, where is it written? And they tested everything that Paul said against the Scripture. And sure enough, they found that the Scripture gave testimony to the reality that, that Jesus Christ is the Anointed One, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And they believed. And uh, there was much fruit there. Yet, those who had caused difficulty in Philippi, there was difficulty in Berea, and they were forced to move. And Paul goes to Thessalonica, where a very similar thing happens. He encounters uh, great opposition and great persecution. And yet, in the midst of that, he, along with uh, Paul, or excuse me, with Silas and Timothy, established a church there. And so his whole Macedonia ministry was marked with hardship, was marked with difficulty. And now he moves from Macedonia to Athens. And in Athens, he begins to reason in the marketplace and begins to proclaim the Word of God. Excuse me, the Word of God. And there in Athens, he goes to a place called Mars Hill. And with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, uh, he wants to explain to them who their unknown God is. And he tries to contextualize the gospel message by relating it to, to markers in their own culture and to questions they had about the, the nature of God. And there he shares that, that it is Christ is the one who is the unknown God. And again, he's met with opposition. There are some who come to faith. And yet he's forced to leave the town. 
And that brings us to where we are today in Scripture, where he goes south to a place called Corinth. So I want you to think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He's responded to a vision that God has given him to go to Macedonia. He goes faithfully, and he ministers faithfully, yet in the midst of his ministry, everywhere he goes, he faces opposition. He faces hardship. He faces persecution. Uh, Both emotionally and physically, he endures great pain for the cause of Christ. And now he goes to Corinth. A man who is fearful, a man who has experienced much pain, a man who could identify with the experience of Chippy the parakeet. Okay? I can only imagine what Paul might have been thinking. Lord, what in the world is going on? Now, I knew it might be difficult, but I had no idea it was going to be this difficult. Now, as he goes from Athens south to Corinth, there's no reason why he should expect any change or anything different. Corinth had a population of 200,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was larger than, than Greece, or excuse me, than Athens. And in terms of Greece, it had more influence in terms of, of trade and commerce. You see, Corinth was located in this place on the Peloponnesus or the boot heel of Greece. And to the east and to the west, there was a canal that was dug. And that canal had logs on either side, going east or going west, out to the ocean on either side. And ships that would come into uh, Greece would literally be pulled across these logs through this canal to get to the other side. And so it was a, a center of shipping and commerce. It was a place of, of great influence. It was most known, however, for uh, its temple uh, to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And uh, Aphrodite was a Greek goddess of love. And with that temple, there were over 1,000 temple prostitutes who each day uh, would practice an act of worship as a practice Right? Ritual prostitution. And so Corinth uh, was a place that was known to be immoral. Corinth was a place that was uh, known to be drawing characters from all different parts of the world that would come for trade. Uh, it was a dark place. Uh, it was a place where Paul would go and not expect anything to be any different than what he had already experienced. Okay? And yet, he goes anyway. And what we're going to find out is, as a result of his commitment to proclaiming the word of God and the result of the encouragement that the Lord is going to give him, he ends up staying there a year and a half. It's the third longest period of time that that Paul stayed anywhere, second only to the time he spent in Rome and in Ephesus. Okay, And during his year and a half there, Uh, Something that could have been totally unexpected happened. 
a vibrant, dynamic church is established. And so the Apostle Paul in our passage this morning finds himself entering Corinth, uh, having had a, a very difficult experience so far in his second missionary journey. And Paul writes later on to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He writes to them and reminds them of the condition he was in when he first came to them. And let's look at this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He says, recalling his, his entrance into the city when he first came to Corinth. He says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, he came, as he reminds them, fearful, really not capable or being up to the task to which God had called him. And yet, it was the, the power of God manifested in him that enabled him to bring the message of the gospel in such a way that the Corinthians would respond and a church would be established. Uh, it wasn't with wise and, and persuasive words, what you would expect from a Greek philosopher. No, it came from a man whose heart was fearful, a man who had experienced trial and difficulty and persecution, a man who knew what it was to encounter pain for the sake of the gospel. And it was in that that the, the Spirit was fully manifested in him as a demonstration of God's power. And it was in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit that the Word of God went forth, that people responded, and that that church was established. Later on, of course, he would write another letter called 2 Corinthians. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he talks about um, the hardships that he had encountered uh, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, the hardships I encountered are the true evidence and mark that I am an apostle. For in spite of all those things, he was faithful and in the power that God gave him, not in his own strength, right, but in his weakness, the power of Christ was made perfect. And of course, later on in that letter, he says, you know, uh, it's when I'm weak that I'm strong. Therefore, I would what? Rather boast in my weakness that I might experience and, and live in the power that's available to each of us in Jesus Christ. And so, it was in his weakness, it was in his fear and in his pain that he went to Corinth. And he proclaimed the gospel. And it was a fruitful ministry. He stayed a year and a half. And many good things happened there. Now, when we think of the fear and the pain and the difficulties we have in life, sometimes it's those things that can keep us from living into all that God intends for us to be. Have you ever had that experience? Where you're, you're sensing God's call in your life to do something, to go somewhere, to take a next step, to share your faith, and yet inside there's this internal tension that causes you to resist what you understand to be God's call for movement in your life. 
It was uh, Franklin Roosevelt who said these famous words. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And I think in the, in the Christian life that we can come and acknowledge to God our fear, the hardship we experience, the, the pain that we may be in, and that we can proclaim to Him that we're weak. But it's in that weakness that He then can begin to fill our lives with His strength. And as He does that, our life becomes a demonstration of His power. And who gets the glory when that happens? He does. And I think that's God's intention, that we would come to Him. And so the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who then shall we fear? And yet, in our lives, we're confronted with all kinds of things to cause us fear. Um, an insurance company once figured out the statistics of, of the probability of things that people most fear happening to them. You want to hear some of those? It's very interesting. Are you afraid to fly? You have a 0.00001% chance of dying in a plane crash. On the other hand, the car insurance industry estimates that the average driver will be involved in three to four crashes in their lifetime, and the odds of being killed in a car crash are one or two percent. Are you afraid of heights? It's the second most fear that's reported. Your chance of being injured by falling, jumping, or being pushed from a high place is one in 65,000. The chance of having your identity stolen is one in 200. Do you, feel, do you fear being killed by a bolt of lightning? In our previous church, Lori and I knew a man that was actually hit by lightning, survived. Got a dynamic testimony. I'll tell you about it sometime. But do you fear being killed by a bolt of lightning? The odds of that happening are one in 2.3 million. You're much more likely to be struck by a meteorite those lifetime odds are 1 in 700,000. All right? Now, this is Memorial Day, right? How about hot dogs? Anybody fearful of hot dogs? I fear them. <laughs> How about hot dogs? Their bark really is worse. Did I say hot dogs? I did, didn't I? Boy, I'm thinking Memorial Day. How about just dogs? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking hot dogs. That is funny. Hey, I had surgery 10 days ago. Okay, I'm still not with it. How about dogs? <laughs> their bark is worse than their bite. The same is true with hot dogs. Your chance of suffering a dog bite are 1 in 137,000. On the other hand, your chance of being injured while mowing the lawn, which is a good reason not to do it, is one in 300,000. How about sharks? You're much more likely to be killed by your spouse. So that's good news. <laughs> one in 135,000 than a shark, which is one in 300 million. 
won't ride a roller coaster? <laughs> oh, you have the patience to stand in line. The chance of a roller coaster injury is one in 300 million. But if you play with fireworks on the 4th of July, you're really playing with fire. Your chance of being injured is one in 20,000. So I guess the question is, we have a lot of things that we're afraid of that we need not be afraid of. But when it comes to living our spiritual lives, I would, I would contend the same thing. Uh, there are a lot of things that we might fear that we don't need to be afraid of. There are a lot of things that we acknowledge uh, our weakness in. There are a lot of things perhaps in our spiritual life that have been painful in which we've encountered hardship and for living for Christ, for following Christ, for proclaiming His mission and His message in the world. And yet, all of those fears we can lay at the foot of our God who says, I want to take your fear and I want to fill you with my power and my strength that it might be a demonstration that I am God and that I would be glorified. All through the Scripture, we read again and again and again these words, fear not. Now, in our passage today in Acts 18, in verses 9 through 10, it's in the midst of all these things that are going on. Again, Paul has gone to the synagogue. Again, Paul has been rejected. In fact, he gets to the place where he says, you know what, I'm done with you. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm free of your blood. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, I've done my job. I proclaim the gospel. I'm done doing it. I am free of whatever happens to you. You now, because you've heard the word of God, are subject to the judgment of God. I wash my hands. I'm done. He gets to that place, right? And yet, in the spite of all of that, in Acts 18, 9 through 10, the Lord wants to minister to Paul. And Paul has a vision, one of six that we read about over the course of his missionary journeys. And here's what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so at the time in which Paul needs it most, the Lord comes in a vision and says to him, do not be afraid. Right? Remain steadfast, immovable. Continue the message or proclaiming the message of the gospel. There's no one here that's going to harm you for there are many that I intend, that I intend to bring to salvation. And so it's a reminder that in all that we do for the Lord in His name and in His power and in His strength, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And that we can trust Him in all things. And that's good news for us today, isn't it? No matter where we are in life, no matter what we might be experiencing, no matter what uh, our missionary journey through life uh, may entail, that we know that in our weakest moments, when we're most fearful, when we're doubting, when we're distressed, when we're discouraged, that we can turn to God and He still gives us His Word and reminds us of this important word. Fear not. Fear not. And it's in those moments in which we experience 
the great work of God in our life. And that He intends to minister not only to us, but through us. There is a uh, piece of classical music called Winter Sunshine. And um, the composer writes it in such a way that that most of the song is very somber and it invokes the mood and the atmosphere of those dark days of winter that all of us Alaskans are familiar with. Okay? And yet, throughout the song, in the somberness of the music, he infuses this upbeat, lively melody that comes at very unexpected times. Hence the word winter sunshine. And when asked what was his inspiration for writing such a piece of music, he said that a person who in the midst of winter experiences a a ray of sun breaking through the darkness and and the cold and the cloud, and, and who can take that ray and in that ray of sunshine experience happiness, he says that person demonstrates what it means to be truly happy. And so as we look here in chapter 18, verses 1 through 11 of Acts, what we find in the midst of of Paul's difficulty is God's winter sunshine. God shines through with with beams of light in the midst of darkness and, and somberness and difficulty in Paul's ministry to encourage him. And that's what I call essential encouragement. It's encouragement that God gives us. It's the winter sunshine. God's signs of encouragement when things are somber, when things are difficult. And let me point out five things that you may quickly overlook in these 11 verses. But all five of these things are winter sunshine. They're rays of God's light to encourage Paul, to give him hope, and to give him joy amidst his difficulty. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 18, we find the friendship and ministry partnership of Aquila and Priscilla, Jews who had been exiled by the Emperor Claudius uh, when the Jews were exiled from Rome. And they had come to Corinth. And there Paul meets them. And it's believed by that time they're, they're already Christ followers. And in the midst of his difficulty, he establishes friendship and ministry partnership. Yes, winter sunshine in Aquila and Priscilla. Then Timothy and Silas, they come from Thessalonica. And they bring good news from Macedonia to say, You know, Paul, all the difficulty, all the hardship, all the things you encountered in Macedonia that were so hard, we have good news. Churches have been established and people are living vibrant lives for Jesus Christ. In fact, they brought with themselves an offering. They gave him money from those churches that were established so that he could step back from having to be a tent maker, right? And can devote himself fully to the preaching of the gospel. Again, winter sunshine. Then, of course, we read in verse 5, or excuse me, verse 7, that they were thrown out of the synagogue. Paul was thrown out of the synagogue. The door was closed. But you know what? The door to the synagogue was closed to him, but next door, right next door to the synagogue, another door was open. The door of Titus Justice. And Titus Justice becomes a follower of Jesus. And and that begins a movement among the Gentiles and God-fearers in the city. And so when God closed one door, right next door, 
He opens another one. And do you know He does that in our lives too? It's the winter sunshine. It's that ray of hope that God shines into our life. The fourth one is in verse 8. Now, remember the door of the synagogue is closed. He's thrown out of the synagogue. He gets so upset. He says, listen, you know, your blood is no longer on my hands. I've done my job. I'm going to devote all my time to preaching to the Gentiles. Right? What happens? The door of the synagogue may have been closed, but the heart of the synagogue ruler and his family, Crispus, are opened. And the scripture says that Crispus and his entire family were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Another ray of winter sunshine. And then finally, the fifth ray is the vision that God gives him. And God gives him the word. It says, fear not. Continue to preach. No one's going to harm you. I have planned in this town the salvation of many people. I'm sovereign is what he's saying to Paul. You can trust me. You can depend upon my word. And you know what? When we're in those times of darkness, when we face trials, when we have hardship in our life, God's word still speaks to us. And his message is still the same. And his message to you this morning is the same. Fear not. Fear not. That you and I, like Paul, might look for signs of essential encouragement. God's encouragement. That encouragement coming in the rays of winter sunshine. I want to close as the worship team comes forward with a story. It's from an author named Erwin McManus. He wrote something called Seizing Your Divine Moment. And this is what he writes. One summer, Aaron went to youth camp. Aaron was his son. He was just a little guy, and I was kind of glad because it was a church camp. I figured he wasn't going to hear all those ghost stories because ghost stories can be really cause kids to have nightmares. You know, in secular camps where they sit around the campfire and tell ghost stories? We say, man, I'm glad my son Aaron's going to Christian camp because he's not going to hear that stuff. But unfortunately, since it was a Christian camp, they didn't tell ghost stories because, of course, we don't believe in ghosts. But what they did tell were stories about demons and Satan. And when Aaron came home, he was terrified. This is what McManus writes. Aaron says to him, Dad, don't turn off the lights, he said before going to bed. No, Daddy, could you stay here with me? Daddy, I'm afraid. They told all these stories about demons. Well, McManus wanted to but couldn't say they're not real because he knew they are. The story goes on. Daddy, Daddy, would you, would you pray for me that I would be safe? And then McManus writes this. I could feel it. I could feel the warm blanket of Christianity beginning to wrap around him. A life of safety, safety, safety. McManus said, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be safe. I will pray that God will make you dangerous, so dangerous that demons will flee when you enter the room. All right, Aaron said, but prayer would be really, really dangerous, Daddy. And then he closes with this. Have you ever come to that place in your own life where you stop asking God to give you a safe life and instead make you a dangerous follower of Jesus Christ? That happens 
when we hear the words of God and he says, fear not. And we're able in the the midst of winter to receive the winter sunlight in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you that those who have gone before us have encountered difficulty and hardship and trial, and yet their lives remain to us a witness, a demonstration of what it means to experience your power in the midst of our weakness. Father, our prayer this morning is that in the face of fear, we would not step back, but that we would move forward, and that we would not pray to be safe, but we would pray to be dangerous followers of Jesus Christ, trusting our lives fully to you and looking to you to give us all that we need to live the life that you've called us to. Father, we ask you to do that in each of our lives and in our life as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.